Hey, well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever it is uh, that you're watching this. So glad that you're with us. And as Logan said, if if you're someone who's new, kind of checking out Grace this way, so glad you're with us. If you're part of the church family who's just traveling, camping at the beach, glad that we can uh, tune in this way as well. If I haven't got to meet you before, my name is Aiden Finn. I'm one of the pastors here at the Norton Campus of Grace, and uh, excited to be uh, jumping in with you guys today. I want you guys to think about this. We've all seen kind of just silly, random, weird things that you always can't put the pieces together on, right? Like you may be going through your life and you see something at your car window or whatever at work, and you're like, what is going on? I, I Last time I, I got to share with you guys, was a couple weeks ago, and I talked about my scooter. Now, I didn't realize how much feedback I would get about some of the very controversial statements I made about the scooter. I said that the scooter was close to a motorcycle. People didn't like that very much. I got emails. I got people yelling things at me from the street while I'm on my porch. I got I got some hate mail on my scooter as I was at a local restaurant. It said Harley Wannabe on it, and that was left on my scooter. I think everyone was just kidding. So my therapist said, they said that they're just kidding and it's gonna be okay, that it's their problem, not my problem. But the scooter kind of lit some things, so I figured this would be the summer of the scooter. And so we all of us see some weird things from time to time that we're like, what's going on there? Picture this, if you will, summer, the year is 2021, and you're driving through the lovely metropolis of Norton, Ohio, and you see a man on his scooter. And as he's driving his scooter, what he has in his hand is a like one of the biggest trash bags you've ever seen in your life. And it is just flowing in the wind like a giant hillbilly sailboat thing. And they just have this giant thing. Like, what would you think? Would you think that guy is picking a weird way to take his trash out. He should get a backpack to carry his things, maybe a milk crate and a bungee cord to carry his things. Like, what would you think about it? Now that may appear stupid, but in reality, what was happening was very, very genius. This man is me on my scooter. And one day, the one of the problems you have with a scooter, if you drive a scooter, you'll know this, maybe a motorcycle, he said, sometimes you don't plan well and you forget when you have to pick up something and when you have to drop something off and all these different kinds of things. So sometimes I can't ride the scooter because I have to carry a guitar to work or a child or whatever. Well, one day after, after work, my wife's like, will you pick up some pizza for the kids? Pizza place right next door to the church. This pizza wasn't for the kids. It was for me as well because this body is made by pizza. And I, I, I left work and I got outside and I was like, oh, I drove my scooter today but I wasn't gonna worry about the details yet. Many of you may have went home, got a car, came back so you could pick up the pizza. I was gonna figure this out. So I pulled up to Pizza Hut on my scooter and I, the guy opens the window, he's like, order for, I said, Finn, and he brings out my large pizza. And he just kind of holds his pizza, looks at me through a little window, he's like, how are we gonna do this? And we just kind of looked at each other like we, like we knew each other our whole lives. Like we looked into each other's eyes and we're like, let's figure this out together, bro. I said, sir, Bring me a trash bag if you have one. And he brought me like the bi the biggest like industrial size trash bag ever. And we put the pizza in the trash bag and we kind of wrap it up like this is this beautiful pyramid prism device. And he's like, you got this? And I wrapped the top around my, my handlebar. I'm like, we got this. And so I just continue up Cleveland Maslin Road with just this giant trash bag. And it looked foolish, but in reality, this was genius. There are times when things look stupid and they're actually intelligent. And times when things that are intelligent are actually dumb. We, last week, kicked off a series that we are going through all summer, all through the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, the first letter that he writes. 
And this is a letter that he writes to people that he loves, but they have all kinds of problems. And as you go through this book, there's just all kinds of different problems, divisions and misunderstandings and and sexual problems and fights and misunderstandings about what Jesus actually taught and division, all these things. And these problems that they have are influenced by the culture that they find themselves in. Paul preached a message to them, causing them to follow Jesus and follow his way of life. And as they're doing that, they're influenced by the culture that they live in. The world that they live in is very pluralistic, a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different ways of doing things. It's very sexually driven, very sexually driven, very comparative. And for the sake of today, one of the things that was a highlight in this culture was this love, obsession, and interest in things of philosophy. That Corinth, the city of Corinth, was in Greece. And if you think back to high school, history, you have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all these thinkers, all these kind of thought leaders for the time. And, and the people in Corinth, they were known in, in Greece, were known for their interest in philosophy, new ideas, new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking about things. And there were these individuals who were traveling philosophers. They were called sophists. S-O-P-H-I, I should have put it on there, sophists. And they were these great speakers. They were these traveling philosophers that were also great communicators, great orators, very entertaining to come and listen to. And they would come through town and they had many interesting and persuasive ideas. It sounds like the world that we're in, right? That there are, there are news networks with ideas. Sometimes there's all kinds of different pastors with ideas. There's YouTubers. There's different kinds of thought leaders, influencers, political commentators. There's so many voices that are entertaining, that have good points, that have different ways to think about things. Some of those things are good. But it just goes to show that we are in this world surrounded by these things, right? And we see all kinds of different ways and thoughts that come about things, ideas about mindfulness and meditation. And there's a lot of new takes on old historical texts. And there's so many, you go through the Hobby Lobby, and there's so many pithy life quotes. And sometimes it seems like our culture can come up with these different religious cocktails that we just make up and pull from Hinduism, a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of new age, whatever, and atheism. And there's all these different concoctions. There's so many different political viewpoints. There's so much that we find ourselves swimming in. And it was no different in the Corinthian church. In the problem that Paul is addressing here, the problem that he's addressing in this section was that for the church that he loved, the church that he spent time with, if you look in the book of Acts, that what happened is these traveling philosophers, these entertainers, these, these thought guys, these sophists, that they defined what it looked like to be wise and to live the good life. And that their ideas of being smart and being intellectual and being praiseworthy, it didn't totally destroy what the Corinthians thought about Jesus and replace it with something else. It did for some, I'm sure. But what it did was it, it influenced the way that they responded to Paul's message, that they followed Jesus. They were influenced and kind of things were distorted and distracted by these sophist teachers, this thing that looked wise to the world. They had this worldly sense of wisdom that they kind of allowed to, to saturate and kind of water down the message of Jesus. And so, so Paul, he was competing with this host of stories and philosophies and beliefs that weren't just somewhere that stayed here. But what happened, what we see all through the book of 1 Corinthians is that these messages of how things should be, the worldly standards of how things should be and how wisdom could actually be attained was it watered down the message of the gospel and the way that it played out in their lives. So different sexual things to kind of, you know, we could just do it this way. Or the way we can handle this conflict, we can just do it this way. 
or the way that we treat each other, you know, we actually have to fight for ourselves. We'll just do it this way. Oh, these teachings that Jesus has about the resurrection and new life and all these things, you know, maybe it's a little bit more like this. And what happens is these wise ideas water down the message that Paul first came to them. And so what Paul does is he reminds them of the powerful message that he first came to them with. He reminds them of the the upside down nature of the message of the gospel that he preached to them, that from beginning to end, this message of Jesus is powerful and it's a little upside down. And what we see is that this message, an upside down powerful message that runs contrary to the Corinthian culture that they are in is going to lead to an upside down response is what Paul says. And so we're going to jump right in. I'll be honest. This is this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I have a three-year-old, and sometimes when he gets really excited, you're, not, you're like, what are you talking about? I know you're excited, but say it again. So I apologize if that's where we're at today. So here's the passage. We'll kinda, we're going to go through uh, the second half of 1 Corinthians 1. Verses 18 through 21 say this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, for those that, that have not accepted Jesus. But to us who are being saved by Christ, it is the power of God. And then he references uh, the, the, um, the prophet Isaiah in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Then Paul says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I just want to read verse 18 again. For the message of the cross is foolishness. It sounds stupid to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we can write this down this way today. That the gospel is a foolish message. It's a foolish message. Now, for the sake of today, what we see here and what Paul is going to go on to say is he kind of gives this argument is that he says, God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. And what the world thinks is wisdom is actually foolishness. This word he uses for foolishness when he says that the message of the cross is foolish, it's literally the Greek word moria, and it, it means moronic, absurd, silly. He says the message of the cross sounds absurd, it sounds silly, it sounds moronic to those that are perishing. And then he talks about this idea of worldly wisdom, which we see all through the scriptures. We see this in Proverbs. We see this all through the scriptures, this, this worldly wisdom, this worldly standard. It's our, our, our own human attempt to decide what is best, what is the right way to live, what is actually wise according to ourselves. And we see that this begins in Genesis 3 at the fall. When Satan tempts Adam and Eve, the temptation isn't just to disobey, but the temptation is that you can be like God. And in verse 6, but the serpents, what we see in verse 6 is that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, this is good for us, and is pleasing to the eye. Like, this is good for me, this, this feels good, and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it and ate it. That we see that even, even in Genesis 3, even from the beginning, that our sense of wisdom is what draws us, in a sense, draws us into our own ways of doing things apart from God. And what Paul says what he's reminded, think about this, Corinthian church, they're hearing all these great entertaining speakers who have these awesome messages about how to live your best life and about how to succeed and about how to think about the world. And you're listening to him like, this is great, isn't this, guys? And Paul comes and he reminds them of the foolish message of the cross and that the gospel sounds foolish to the wisdom of the world. Think about it. 
Think about the message. The best shot that we got for life here and life forever is that 2,000 years ago, God himself, of whom was born by a virgin, came into this world. He didn't come as a president. He didn't come as a celebrity basketball player or something, but he came as a working class teacher. That he was a rabbi by day and a carpenter by night. And this man, Jesus, who was God, who claimed to be God, came and he lived the perfect life, did everything right. You know, it's the way that we think we can all figure out the perfect life that we think we can manage. And by Jesus doing that, it made him the only person in human existence to actually have a say in how we fix the evils of this world and how we fix the problems of the world. And he deals with the problems of this world, not by killing it, but not by going and destroying it with power, but by letting it kill him. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our claim to fame, the one thing that we got is that this man who claimed to be God, who died on an old Jewish cross outside the city of Jerusalem in the year 33 AD, that he died for us so that we don't have to pay for the evil that we have done. But instead, we can follow this man's way of life and his way of being a human in this world until he returns and comes back for us. That's the message of the gospel we believe. And you can hear that this church, they heard this message, but then these guys sound smart and they sound wise and this sounds a little bit more practical and applicable for happy living, that it may sound like utter foolishness. But to those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, that message of the cross, that God came and God died, it is powerful in what Paul says. Paul doesn't say that, that the mountains God created was the power of God. That the miracles of the Old Testament were the power of God. He says that the message of the cross is the power of God. This foolish message is the manifestation of God's power. And Paul says all of this, all of this hinges on the cross. This whole story of Jesus' coming and burial, death and resurrection and life and teachings and fulfillment of prophecies and promise of things to come, it all hinges on the moment of the cross. I think about myself, and I don't know if you're any different, but we get so used to the cross. We get so used to the cross. Having our necklaces, we see it on gravestones. Our, our church logo has a cross on it. The cross is something that's pretty. There's Celtic crosses that are very ornate and simple sterling silver crosses. And crosses are nice. But this message that Paul was preaching, the message of the cross, it's, it's gross. It is, it is an uncomfortable thing. We, we, don't, we don't have cross as a way of ex, uh, of execution in our culture. But it would, it would be like if we talked, if we had a little casual conversation about gas chambers, electric chairs, firing squads. Like next time you're at dinner with some new friends, be like, oh, I have an interesting story to tell you guys about a gas chamber, about a firing squad. It's, you're like, dude, it's, chill. it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's not appropriate. If we were to sing some of the songs about the cross and place, oh, the wonderful electric chair, you're like, that doesn't sound nice. It sounds uncomfortable. The cross was horrible. The cross was meant to inflict as much pain as it could on its victims. But listen, the goal of the cross for as, as, as hard and as much suffering came from the cross, what the cross was designed to do was to inflict maximum pain, but to inflict maximum shame. 
that the cross was an instrument of torture used to shame the one who was on it, was to embarrass them and point out their weakness, that the Romans, that the Romans who were the power of the world, they would nail thieves to the cross. They would nail people who tried to oppose Rome to the cross, revolutionaries. They would nail them to the cross. They would strip them naked. They would strip them naked and nail them, pin them up like a spider to the cross and hold it up so that everybody could see that this person tried to come against us. Look at him now. Fleming, Fleming Rutledge, she says, she says this. She's an author. She says, crucifixion was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. Debasement resulting from public agony was a chief feature of the method along with the prolonging agony. It was a form of advertisement or public announcement. Do you get that? This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more like an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure. And you're like, oh, the cross, ah, that's rough. And it sounds rough to be a man crucified to the cross. And where the foolishness of this message comes in is when we acknowledge that it wasn't just a man who claimed to be good on that cross or a man who was good on that cross, but it was God himself, the creator who was pinned up and publicly displayed for all to see this fool. That was the shame of the cross. I, I need to read this to you. I read this this week. This is so powerful by a guy named Trevin Wax. He says, imagine the humility it took for Jesus to die there. Here he was nailed to a cross by soldiers whom he created. He was raised up into the sky on beams of wood from the trees that he made. And he looked into the eyes of the people who killed him and knew their names, their histories, and their destinies. This creator was slain by his creation. This shepherd was slain by his sheep. The creator of life submitted to death. This is the ultimate humiliation. And here, Paul is saying, this is God. This is what God is like. Rethink everything you've ever thought about God and his power and his majesty and watch that dying man nailed to the tree, gasping for breath and see in his death the God of self-giving love. Caesar ruled by putting others up on the cross, but Jesus ruled by putting himself there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the message of the cross. That our hope in this life, that the door to the good life that our, 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 our way to be with Jesus forever, to not be eternally separated from Jesus, but to find life and life abundant in the presence of God by believing in, identifying with, trusting, and giving our life to this Jesus on the cross, that this is the message that Paul came with. And you think about that cultural moment. All the wise teachers all the great ways to live. Everybody's getting excited. The sophists have come to town and they are entertaining us and teaching us the best way to live. And Paul, in the clumsiness of his message, says, you should give your life for the one who gave you his life. That you should follow me to death and dying to ourselves, just as the God of the world died himself. It sounds foolish. But the way of the cross, as much as it is a foolish message, the way of the cross is a foolish way to live. I put foolish in quotes to go with the passage. In the world's economy, in the world's way of, of doing things, the way of the cross is foolishness. 
Look what Paul goes on to say in verses 22 through 25. He says, he's, he, there's different people he's talking to. The church was made up of Gentiles, people who used to be Greeks and, and, and kind of secular, so to say, right? But then also Jews, people who for their people's history for generations have been following Yahweh of the Old Testament, following the, the Torah, the stories of the Old Testament. And what he says is that Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Look what he says. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, he's called people from both groups, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I think this division that he gives us that how is interesting. He says first that Jews demand signs, that Jews would have been ones who would have followed Yahweh of the Old Testament, God of the Bible, and they would have grown up with these stories of him delivering them from Israel or from, from captivity in, in Egypt and parting the seas and miraculously feeding them in the desert and leading them by smoke during the day and a, a pillar of fire by, by night and all these massive stories that they believed and and the Jews demanded signs. They wanted, if the Messiah was going to come, this promised Messiah was going to come, they were like, prove to us that you are the guy. Show us that you're the guy. In Matthew 16, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come and they tested Jesus. They said, if you truly are the Messiah, show us something. And Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus does tons of miracles, but he's not going to be tested by these people to prove himself that he is for their sake. And we can be the same way, especially maybe for us that are similar to Jews that grew up knowing the stories, knowing the Lord. We can be the same way. That we can look for signs. We can be in a situation like Jesus just proved to us, just prove to us that this is you, that you want us to do this. God, just, just show me really clearly the right thing you want me to do and then I'll follow you. Just, just heal this person, Jesus, and then, I, then I'll give my life to you. Heal me, and then I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you just get me this job, Jesus, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to glorify you. If you just come through in this situation, then I promise I'll be who you want me to be. I'll make these kind of mental deals with God. If you just show us the sign, then I will believe you. Then I will follow you. Then I will trust that you are who you say you are. And that's kind of the deal that we make with God a lot of times. I, I, have, not, I have not puked in over 20 years. Won't do it. I'm scared to say that because I feel like I'm probably going to puke this weekend. But I have not puked since I was like in fifth grade or something. And I, rem I still remember it. The last time I puked, being a kid in my bed, and it was like five hours of just me and God. I'm like, listen here, Jesus. If you take this puke from me, I will give my entire life to you. I will, be, I will never sin again if you keep me from puking. I puked. I sinned. The thing about all of these promises, these God, if you do this, then if you just show me the sign, if you just come through the way I want you to come through, then is that the truth is that the Bible is full of men and women, prophets and kings who saw God, who saw the miracles of Jesus, who saw the miracles of God, who the Israelites were actually like, saw these things. The disciples saw Jesus and they all, they ran, they denied him, they wandered, they turned away, they failed, they tripped up. That even if we were like, show us the sign and then we'll do the thing, the Bible's full of examples of people being showed the sign and then running and denying him and falling away. And we are no different. And that is why this message is foolish. 
Because even in our promise that if you show us a sign, we will come through, we're going to fail. And the message of the cross is that we come to him in our failure. That's the story of Peter. Peter's like, Jesus, I will never leave you. Things get real serious, all the disciples. It says Peter, but it said all the disciples ran. And it wasn't until Jesus came back, resurrected, met Peter. And just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus calls him three times to go and feed his sheep. Loves him in his failure. Changes Peter's life. That we, even if God shows us something, we aren't going to come through for God, but the cross shows us that God has come through for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, his second letter to Corinthians, that God says to him, his grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. It sounds foolish. But the Jews demand signs. But I think this is where our culture is at. And we're going to kind of wrap up here. But, but that Greeks look for wisdom. The Greeks, which I've been a lot of the Corinthian church, the kind of secular ones who didn't grow up Jews, but the ones that would have been listening to these sophists that come from this Greek secular Gentile culture, that they would have looked for wisdom. Does this make sense? Do these teachings of Jesus give us the best way to live? Is it practical? Is it applicable? Is it pithy? Can I follow this easily? Is this going to be most helpful for the way I want to live my best life? We can be pretty Greeky. In kind of our, our kind of post-God secular mentality, we can be pretty Greeky, right? We want answers. We want the best way of doing things. We want practical advice. We want life hacks, right? Like these aren't bad things. It's just the way that our hearts go. We're less religious or more practical. Because we want to enjoy the world that we find ourselves in. We want to enjoy this life. We are sold the enjoyment of this life. And so we want people to give us ways to do that the best way that we can. And I've grown up in church for 31 years. I've grown up in youth group, all these kinds of things. And oftentimes, faith in Jesus, this whole Christian deal, this whole following Jesus, giving life to Christ, getting saved and being a Christian, oftentimes it can be sold as an answer to satisfy our worldly wisdom. That all the things that we desire and kind of our worldly sense of wisdom, we've been marketed Christianity is a fix for those things. Come to Jesus in X, Y, Z. Your marriage is going to be great. If you just follow this way of sexuality, then you're going to have the best sex of your life. You'll have an answer for all your problems. If you say yes to Jesus, just like that, you're going to have passion and you're going to have purpose and you're going to live this life that's going to be undefeatable. That your anxiety is going to disappear. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel of Jesus doesn't impact all these things. Don't mishear me. But oftentimes, the, 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 the worldly wisdom, the best way to live, what's practical and going to put money in the bank and a girl around my arm and the best friends I've ever had and the best community in the world, all these things, just Jesus will give it to you. And then we become Christians. And I watched time and time again as a kid, every kid coming in the youth group being like, all right, where's the prize? And then it doesn't pan out. Things don't get cleaned up right away. And we have to start giving away parts of ourselves to Jesus. They're like, wait, hold on. What do I have to sacrifice? You're like, you know what? I'm going to do something else. As I've grown to become a pastor, it's no different. Because we have been sold that faith in Jesus is just another product to give us the life that we want. And I, I want to I say this. I hope you'll hear my heart on this. I hope this makes sense. Sometimes when I get to meet with people uh, in my office... I don't really have an office. I steal the other guy's offices. When I meet with people in the other guy's offices, 
One thing I'll say oftentimes is that, that following Jesus is not practical. Like, hear me out. Just think about it for a second. That following Jesus is not practical in the way that, the, that we, we naturally want it to be practical. Jesus never said it was going to be practical. He didn't say, come follow me and it's going to make sense. Like, if you just, just read the story of Jesus. People come to Jesus. And they're like, I'll come follow you. I'm just going to go do some stuff first. And he's like, nah. No, that probably makes it. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Just come follow me. He, 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 this isn't the most practical way to live. Does it, li- does it lead us to life and life abundant? Absolutely. Do I believe that following Jesus is the best way to be human, the best way to live? Yes. Do I recommend it? 12 out of 10. Absolutely. But the life Christ calls us to, by, by our world standards, by what just feels natural and what works out and what's kind of efficient, most times, oftentimes, is going to look foolish and impractical. That's what Paul's saying. So Paul's saying in this passage, this message looks foolish, sounds foolish. Now there, hear me out, there's a lot of things I've been interested in this recently about our Western culture that is shaped by Christianity. Human rights and love of the weak one and the story of the, the little man becoming the hero and, and fighting for the good of the people who can't fight for themselves. All those things that we kind of find is natural stem from faith. I, I Tom Holland, Becca McLaughlin, there's some different art uh, authors and writers, secular and Christian, I'd encourage you to check out. But a lot of our Western culture is shaped by the principles of the cross, so much so that we're not even aware of it. But for the things that are outside of that, it's going to look like foolishness. I was just thinking of some of this. I was thinking about it's, following Jesus is not the most efficient in terms of our time usage. He never says, like, come follow me and we'll make good use of your time. We will be real efficient so you can get in and get out. I thought about this as I was a, a middle schooler. I was like in eighth grade and there was a kind of, we were starting off doing these little like discipleship groups and there was me and five other guys and, and we didn't know what this thing was. And there was a guy who goes to the church who came and led it. And this guy had a family. He was successful in the work that he did. And he came every Monday night to sit down with the five of us. And I will tell you this, my friends. We were, we were like just the most obnoxious kids, rambunctious, ornery, distracted. Like this guy, I mean, if, if he got to say the name of Jesus and read one verse to us, like it was probably, he probably got in his car and he's like, at least I said the Bible once. Like it was, it was crazy. We were so distracted. Like he probably got in the car every day and by all human metrics was like, that was a waste of time. These kids are not listening to what I'm saying. And for two years, he just came every week. And I don't, I don't know where all these guys are, but I know that for me, looking back 15, 20 years later, that it was so formative seeing, seeing a man outside of my own family who was successful, who had his own life, but chose to follow Jesus by giving of his time to us every week, even when it looked like he was getting nothing back. I think about, I think about this with you go on missions trips, or maybe there's different ways that you serve in the church, and sometimes we come into these things, and they're life-giving, right? Like, you serve, you do these certain things, and you get something back out of it. You're like, ah, I saw kind of the hands and feet of Jesus. I saw how it blessed somebody. This was awesome. But if you've served, if you've gone on a mission trip, if you've done these things, if you've led a group of middle schoolers, you know that a lot of times you get back in your car and you're like, does this even matter? I think about this with prayer. Like we pray, most of our prayer life is us submitting ourselves to Jesus, us being in communion with Jesus, and they're not seeing like these instant things coming out of it. 
that it's this investment of time. You think about the story of the, of the Bible, the story of Jesus. Like Jesus comes as God to save the world and he's like, boop, we're going to start as a baby. 30 years. I'm 31. Like my entire life was Jesus just like, I'm coming. I'm coming. Like he could have just wandered out of the wilderness and been like, listen, I was a kind of a traveling man and I'm here to fix things right away. That in our worldly wisdom, God's way of doing things is not always the most efficient. Think about this with money. Sometimes Jesus calls us to give away ourselves. He calls us to, to give away our, our, our financial means sometimes. Sometimes we see the way that blesses people. We see the return on that. But sometimes when we tithe, when we give, there's a lot of things that that would be a lot more practical for me to use. There's a lot, I could just real quickly be like, I could pay for this, I could invest it here, I could pay this off, I could do this. Like there's a lot of things that that money would be a lot more useful for. But we cheerfully give, which sounds like foolishness, to the kingdom that we cannot yet see. I think about this, this is kind of a hot topic here, but I, I say this when I get to meet with people, is that sometimes when it comes to our sexuality, when it comes to, when it comes to the things in the world of our sexuality that we want to see what's pleasurable, what's most practical. And oftentimes, the Christian sexual ethic sounds foolish. Wait, wait, kind of putting aside my sexuality until I get married, like that being, like that, that increasingly sounds crazy. And I, I want to say this. I meet with couples, and, and, and we're living together. You're living together, right? And I, I will admit to you, there's probably a lot of things that are more practical about living together. Save some money. Figure out each other's weird habits before you really sign the paper and sign into this deal. And you're kind of like, let's figure it out beforehand. And if it doesn't work out, then we're not married. Like, I get it. That is more practical. From a worldly standpoint, like, that is practical. But Jesus doesn't call us to be practical. That Jesus calls us this, this picture of marriage that, it, that is sacred, and that is about dying to yourself, that's about sacrificing yourself for the sake of the other, that's about this covenant, that's about waiting for this promise to come together and not letting anything break that. And even oftentimes in marriage, from our cultural standards, you're like, you guys should leave, you're not happy. But what the gospel, the gospel as it influences marriage is not about happiness, but it's about this commitment, about sanctification, about being more like Jesus. And if we step back, we're like, that is stupid. That is foolish. That is not practical. That is not happy and healthy and the best way to do things in our view. That's what Jesus calls us to. I think about the idea of bearing one another's burdens. It's not always the most practical thing to walk along someone that maybe you're not even best friends with and be like, let me, let me carry this weight for you, this emotional weight. That, <laughs> Jesus says, what is it to love someone who loves you back? He's like, everybody does that, but Jesus calls us to love those that don't love us back. Like, that is not the most practical thing in the world. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that the meek, the brokenhearted, the persecuted, that those are the ones who are blessed. Like, that is not practical. But God's wisdom isn't obvious. It's not convenient. It's not expedient. Look at what verse 26 says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you, they're like Paul's throwing shade at the people he's writing to. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Now there are, you know, I think Bono's a Christian. That's pretty cool, right? But, but like, he's like, most of you are not that great. Like that's what Paul's saying. He's like, your parents aren't cool. You, no one really wants to listen to you and you're kind of dumb. 
But look at verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. This is God's way of doing things, and it looks foolish. But it's where Jesus says life is found. Personally, guys, honestly, this passage, this whole section here, is one of the most comforting and inspiring things to me. Because it reminds me that this faith in Jesus is going to sound a little nuts to me. It reminds me that just when I feel like I'm coasting, I'm like, this is great. This is going well. Then I'm like, you know what? This should be gritting against me a little bit. That when sometimes when you kind of zoom out and sometimes maybe you have this moment where you pause and you think about this whole Jesus, Bible, gospel, God stuff, and you're like, is this, is this really it? And then I come to this message, this, this passage where Paul says, it's going to sound foolish. And I'm reminded that this is the power of God in my heart. It's interesting. Jesus, Jesus says you must become like a little child to enter my kingdom, to understand this. You must become like a child, have faith like a child is what Jesus calls us to. Now listen, I, I am not saying, there's so much there's so much evidence. You could go through apologetics. You can go through even, uh, there's even atheists now that are acknowledging how Christianity shaped culture, all this stuff. That's not the argument I'm making today. I'm not saying that, well, whatever, this is all insane. Just plug your nose and jump in. It's not what I'm saying, but the way of the heart of this message of the cross doesn't sound like it's it's the most efficient way of doing things. It doesn't sound like it's the wisest thing that we could come up with, right? Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says this. Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves. All the pleasures, all the, the ways that we want to do things, the things that feel good and the things that we think are most, most expedient and happy and healthy, he says, deny yourself, deny your flesh, deny your selfish desires and take up your cross and follow me. And what he says here, verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. He doesn't say whoever wants to save their life might lose it, has a good chance of Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But look at this, this is, this is, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That there is this, there is this, this all or nothing nature to this passage, if we want to truly find life in Christ. Paul says this towards the end of Corinthians, we'll hit this in a, in a couple weeks, where he basically says, if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are to be pitied. All of our eggs are in one basket. We are going all in on this thing what it is but oftentimes I know this is true for me maybe it's true for you that we oftentimes try and have a foot in each camp years ago my friend and I were on a road trip I reference this all the time and we were in Joshua Tree California kind of this really cool desert park thing and I am not an adventurous person I am not I don't like things to hurt or be scary and we were he was jumping up on all these rocks and I was like I kind of want to follow him jump up in these big rock formations so I'm on this one rock and there's this next rock and I I wanted to jump up it, and it's one of those things where, like, for four minutes, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to do it. And when I finally went to do it, and it's kind of like a drop, like between these two rocks is like a 15-foot drop. And I go to do it, and I'm nervous, and I'm like, ah, and I put my foot up, and I don't commit. And I have one foot on this rock, and I have one foot up on this rock, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Where I can't quite go back, and I can't quite pull myself up, and I'm 
floating over this 15 foot drop and my friend is, there's video of this, he is dying laughing and I'm just in between. And oftentimes that's what happens to us is that we know that this message, this way of the cross that Jesus calls us to can grate against some of the things that feel natural to us. And we say, I wanna follow Jesus. And we have a foot in that world. But we're also like, ah, but I don't wanna look stupid. I don't want this to, to be a failure. I don't wanna commit my whole life to this thing, my money to this thing, my sexuality to this thing, my, my time to this thing, my relationships to this thing, the way I parent my children to this thing. I don't wanna, where I live, I don't wanna give all this to this thing and look stupid. So at the same time, I kinda want it to make sense. What we have is we have our feet in two different places. What happens is we get stuck in between because we're not sure about all these things of the world, but we're also at the same sense. Like, I don't really feel like I'm jiving with Jesus because I not, haven't really trusted it. He's there. But we haven't fully put our trust in him. I think about some of these things, some of these foolish things. And I would call us to embrace the foolishness. Embrace this cross-centered, gospel-shaped foolishness. Embrace it. I think about people here who have given up their vacations to serve the body. They've given up their time after it to come and serve on something that might feel seemingly insignificant. I think about sexuality, people that in, the, in their same sex attraction have chosen celibacy to follow, have literally given their sexual desire to Jesus. People who have married, who've been moved out, people who, who had a certain way of life, a certain sexual ethic, a sexual addiction, like I'm gonna give this away. It sounds silly, sounds foolish. It sounds very contrary to the world that we're in for the sake of Jesus. That I will, I will commit my money, which I could save up, I could invest, I could buy this, I could buy this boat, I could go here, I could move this, I could do these things. I'm gonna give that to the kingdom of God of which I can't always see extremely tangible in my own life, how that's shaping out. But I'm gonna give that. I heard a story of a guy in our greater uh, fellowship of Grace family here that, who literally sold his vacation house so he could stay up here in the winter in the coldness of Ohio and be with his family. I'm not saying you have to do that, but it's just interesting. And I could think of that, Example after example, I'm embarrassed people of just of, of foolishness. I heard a story of an old couple years ago that didn't want to totally clean up the yard and leave some weeds because the people next to them they wanted to connect with kind of had some weeds going on. They're like, what if we just leave some weeds so we don't look like we're trying to be better than that? Like silly stuff. Embracing the foolishness for the sake of the kingdom. Now listen, this is not some call to like, do it all, be crazy for Jesus and be the best person you can. We are going to fail time and time again. In these pursuits, we will time and time again find ourselves stuck in this rock. But a challenge for you today, a challenge for me, is to ask yourself, what are the ways that God might be calling me to embrace this foolishness? To dive in to this foolishness. To embrace the message of the cross. And in so doing, truly finding our life in Christ because Jesus promises us that whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. And it's gonna look like foolishness to the world that we're in. Will you pray for me today? Jesus, we are so thankful for the cross. We are so thankful, Jesus, that you gave yourself away for us. And Jesus, forgive us for being so used to the message of the cross, for the cross becoming so dull and so benign in our hearts. And Jesus, I pray that you might remind us of the weight and beauty of the cross. 
that as we live, as we as we live our day-to-day life and our decisions and our money and our relationships, that they would be shaped by the cross. And that Jesus, we as a community might just embrace the foolishness, that we might give away ourselves for what may seem foolish. Jesus, we're thankful. We're thankful that this story doesn't totally add up all the time, that it doesn't make complete sense. But that you call us in faith to follow you, to trust you, even when we don't see what is next, Jesus. But we trust that you're good. We trust that you're with us. We trust that you're God who isn't just with us, but has gone before us. We give these things to you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.